Welcome back to 2023, if I only knew listeners. Today I'm here once again with my excellent co-host Fred. I've been on holiday for about four months, so I've not seen Fred for for ages, but uh, we're here to kind of catch up and get a bit of a feel for what this year might look like. We want to talk about general trends and and what's going to happen this year. It's a big task. Neither of us are fortune tellers, although Fred might have a little bit of that in him, I reckon. Um, So we're going to have a bit of a stab at it and uh, kind of see what direction we think the world might be headed for. I'm a little bit pessimistic. Fred, how are you feeling? Look, I'm, I'm less pessimistic. Welcome back, Matt. You were missed. Mm. Um, there was a fair bit of feedback from people out and about that do listen to us, those poor, sad <laughs> um, souls that missed us for a number of months. Uh, Matt's gone and seen the world. He's been mm. to... Uh, uh, I understand India for a period of time and then a whirlwind trip around Europe, which is mm. fantastic. Um, and Matt came back and said to me, Fred, I want to talk about 2023 because I'm a bit worried that we're not quite where we should be. Yeah. He talked about wars in Ukraine. He talked about Silicon Valley collapses. He talked about nuclear submarines and <laughs> diplomacy in the Pacifica region. And, you know, it really boils down to the idea that one of the things Matt said before we started is that his generation's kind of had more than its fair share of bumps and lumps when it comes to things like the global economy, whereas previous generations had some pretty out there, pretty open um, issues. You know, let's not forget why they called it the Great Depression. But with that said, you know, they got to move on, whereas in the last probably decade, there's been a rolling wave of hit after hit after hit. The reason I'm not as pessimistic as Matt is I don't believe much has changed. I just think the capacity to know about what's happening has mm. So, Matt, how are you post your trips? I'm exhausted, but I've, I've had a, hand, a couple of weeks back in Melbourne now, so I'm uh, starting to recover. It, it was a, a bit of a, a COVID uh motivated trip i suppose i've been stuck inside for so long i always imagined i'd spend my youth traveling the world fred you know um and that was a bit uh, hampered so i decided to cram it all into one summer which was extremely exciting but absolutely exhausting um so i came back home and, and kind of caught up on current affairs and started some more union all that and um was kind of hit with a, a, a really strong sense of the um, inflation that we've been seeing in Melbourne. I've come home and I went to the supermarket and my uh, my favourite purchase at Coles, anyone goes to Coles in Melbourne might be familiar with the salmon packs. They, you get like four fillets of salmon and in the past they'd be anywhere from like 12 to 13, maybe 14 bucks. But uh, now they're like $17 for it. And uh, I was devastated to learn that I wouldn't be able to get my salmon uh, quite so affordably. And I think that's uh, that set me off on this sense of, man, what's 2023 actually going to look like? If that's how we've begun the year, what's it going to look like? Um, and so I think that, yeah, look, I'm seeing things that I think me and my peers are pretty worried about. Um, you know, young people, I don't reckon, are in the best position to argue for wage increases in their casual Macca's jobs or whatever. And so I see the um, rising prices of things in Melbourne being like strictly impactful on them. And, you know, the, the spending habits of young people are pretty driven by things that, um, you know, maybe like uh, leisure activities, be it food or socialising or whatever. And those are things that are important and that are, uh, can be can be quite heavily impacted, I think, by by increasing prices. So that got me thinking that well, maybe things aren't going in 
the best way possible. And then uh, and then I've been, you know, tuned into the news and and we've got a lot more violence going on in Ukraine around the town of Bakhmut at the moment. Um, we've got uh, global bank collapses in, in Silicon Valley, as you said. Um, these are these are big things that are coming up this year and the next few years to come. I'm not sure exactly how they affect our day-to-day -day lives, but I'm getting a real sense of, of perhaps discontentment from young people, Fred, a real sense that, well, aren't these systems that are being governed by adults meant to be working and aren't they meant to be doing things to help us? Um, you know, I'm studying some economics. I'm reasonably across the, the, the causes of contemporary inflation, certainly not an expert, but um, I understand that interest rates need to rise to combat inflation. But equally, the the interest payments that I'm getting for savings in the bank don't seem to be going up so much. And that's how I understood the uh, economic levers to actually function. You raise interest rates, people get encouraged to save, and so they spend less, and uh, the economy cools off a little. And these are, these are things that I feel like are, are discussions that are happening in one language or another among young people at the moment. What's it going to look like? And uh, I think that's uh, something that I think is really worth a bit of a chat with you about um, today. I, I think it's fascinating, actually, um, you know, you've just been around the world and look, it, it would be punching down if I pointed out the big issue was a four pack of salmon. And I'm not going to do that because I know people will think that when you said it. <laughs> it's an example of a, a cost of living inflation issue that is real at the moment. And, you know, in, in real terms, it's not just the things that we eat, but it's how we fuel our vehicles. It's... Mm -hmm the decisions that we make about healthcare. Whenever things get more expensive in life, um, uh, generationally, we have to make a decision about what we forego. And it may be that, again, your generation is making decisions about quality of life rather than goal attainment in life. And I think this is a real social, almost anthropological experience in that there are people that would say, in the event that you can't afford the salmon, buy a tin of tuna, but it's a false equivalency because what we're really talking about at the moment is the value of money. Mm. We are quite privileged here. I'm sure you saw parts of India that don't have that mm. same privilege and people are literally living on cents a day or, or trying to live on cents a day. But one of the things I think is really interesting is if you look at those other historic generational shifts like the Great Depression, the major difference was not the economic pressure on people. In fact, uh, we know it was quite dire for periods of time for a great deal of people. It's the idea that the information flow to people is much higher. Hmm. Hmm. There's one thing we know about pessimism in an economic context is it hurts those people with less money first. Hmm. Right. So those people that are already struggling are those people that will struggle more. And if you think about being, for example, a single parent in a moderate part of a suburban city in Australia, if petrol goes up by 15 cents a litre, that's probably about four bucks less in your wallet. Four mm. dollars might make the difference between a meal or one serving yeah. at, you know, when, when you're trying to make ends meet. Um, those that are unemployed... Uh, have just come off benefits like the COVID top-ups mm. and have been hit with inflation. And there's a lot of people that say, well, they just go and get a job. And in fact, employment rates are as low as possible. But it doesn't mean that everybody that's unemployed is in a capacity right now to get a job. We have a safety net for a reason. And when economic pressure 
impacts on the safety of the safety net, then it's right that your generation should be concerned. The other side of this is the information that we have also says for the first time in a long time, banks whilst collapsing in the US because of poor governance, the ones in Australia are making multi-million dollars worth of profit. Yeah. Uh, I was really horrified when, you know, we saw Qantas make a phenomenal profit, but make no effort to give back taxpayers money that they were given during COVID mm. that helped them stay afloat at a period of time. So they had it. Um, it should have been given as a loan, not a handout. And now their shareholders benefit, which are normal everyday Australians. But again, it's institutional investors. So there seems to be one of the things I think your generation has a right to be uh, concerned about is the gap between rich and poor. Mm-hmm. For example, you know, your folks have a home. I, I still remember the one conversation I had with my father is that he bought our family home for £3,000. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. And if you knew back then what you know now, given the interest rates were, it was actually a very different system. It was almost uncanny how much they could lend you. or They were very conservative, but repayments were £2 a week or something. Mm, right, you know, yeah. Talking about phenomenally low numbers and you would have thought, hey, go and buy the whole street, but it was relative until it's not. And yeah. then you go, you know, you know, you robbed me of my inheritance for poor decisions about frugal <laughs> back then. You should have been more bullish. <laughs> collapses in the world because people are trying to do that as society has moved on. Yeah. I, I think what's interesting for me is you talk about the landscape of 2023 and domestically why there is a little bit of pessimism. The reason I'm not as pessimistic is because if we, if you look at the interest rate now to buy a home. Mm. If I had have gotten that interest rate when I bought my first home, I would have been cheering. Yeah, right. Yeah. I would have been high-fiving people and telling them I was an absolute genius because I think the interest rate I got was double digits when I bought my first property. Low double digits. Yeah, yeah. And that was a good deal. That was, that was hey, hey, this is really affordable. This is really good. I think the other element of this is, um, and I don't know if this is generational or not, but one of the things I've always struggled with is what does a war in Ukraine impact on things like domestic uh, fuel prices in Australia? And right, yeah, you yeah. Know, you know, there's the OPEC standard and all these other things. One of the things I would have thought um, we might consider is becoming a little less of a global citizen to cover our own backyard. And I wonder why people your age aren't sort of pushing for that when what we're actually hearing uh, from politicians at the moment is quite the opposite. We've become quite, we're putting ourselves on the global stage, particularly in our region to say, hey, we're going to keep the peace. Mm, Yeah, We're going to do this stuff. And if you look at what that costs in other parts of the world, it impacts on, you know, a four pack of, you know, salmon fillets. So tell me if you were, if you were making a prediction for this year, Matt, given all the things that you are concerned about and this general, you know, general sort of, um, uh, it's a, it's a, you know, we've crested the wave of COVID. I will ask you about what that was like on your travels. Mm. And now we're at, um, you know, a, a different point, maybe a little bit of a lull in things. What's your prediction for 2023 or the remainder of 2020? Mm, 
Yeah, because I, I feel like there was a year maybe perhaps of, of, of real optimism as, as particularly in Australia, we were able to get out and, and no longer need our masks or, or um, be particularly restrained in our lives by COVID. And um, I'm feeling that kind of optimism start to wane as I see these like challenges of, of domestic living. I think um, what, what, what I feel like we're seeing is, is less things that are going to go disastrously wrong in 2023, as much as things that seem to represent a uh, pattern that undermines my confidence in in the way the world is governed and the way the world is structured and all of that, when it feels like we have had a global financial crisis in 2008, and then we've had uh, some maybe 10 years at most of, of kind of recovery, and then we're back into some more crises with uh, the pandemic. And now it feels like whatever recovery we had from the pandemic isn't uh, isn't perhaps benefiting the the average person at least as much as uh, I'd have hoped. It seems striking to me how uh, perhaps inflation might be being driven by a number of uh, businesses seeking to recoup lost profits during COVID. Um, that's speculation, but I read a very interesting piece of research by uh, the Australian Institute, uh, an admittedly progressive think tank that talked about um, if you normalize uh, inflation against the record profits businesses are making, then inflation would end up being comparable to the RBA's target. Now, I'm in no position to speak to that particularly uh, strongly, but that's an idea that I think permeates a lot of uh, young people's uh, thoughts uh, in 2023 is if these guys are making record profits, arguably in response to the losses they were making during COVID, and, then I, and I'm paying so much more money, Maybe that's because I'm the one paying for them. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a, a, a certainly a scary idea as it seems that we continue to perhaps um, individualise uh, benefit and socialise risk. And that's uh, perhaps a whole podcast in and of itself. But I think that to me, 2023 seems to be a little bit of a, a, little bit of a beginning of a downhill again, which is a shame because we've been going downhill for a while, I think, Fred. And maybe my pessimism is unwarranted, but... Uh, I'm certainly feeling like uh, things are going to get at least a little worse before they could get better. I, I don't think your pessimism, pessimism is unwarranted. I certainly think it's not unusual. And I, I'll, I'll do the old man thing and relay a story. <laughs> I remember, uh, and, and Paul Keating's made the news recently for his comments, Paul Keating, for those that don't know, former Prime Minister of Australia, Famous for talking about the recession that we had to have. Mm. And I remember the recession that we had to have um, hitting at about the time that I was contemplating graduating from university mm. and thinking I will never get a job. And back then you used to look for jobs in the newspaper. Right, right. The job section of the newspaper went from 60 pages to six for a period of time. And I remember just being so desolate and so feeling so bleak about my prospects, relatively speaking. And, you know, I was working a fairly standard retail job at the time and, and doing all right, you know, sp probably spending more money than I had. And everybody talking about the idea of this economic kind of hardship. Uh, the other side of that was that I was in a family business. So the recession was really chronic or felt in a different way to me because of a family business that served people. Fortunately, my family business was in one that was a fairly recession-proof space, which is food. Mm. It was a fruit and vegetable store. I've talked about it on the, the pod before. Yeah. 
One of the things we learned though was that people would forego things uh, for staples. And one of the things that kept my father's business going through the time was his ability to adapt what he stocked and to find value in the things that people always needed. So some of the luxury items and, you know, there'd be less of those, maybe one box of those and and many more potatoes, onions and pumpkin mm, on the shelves right. than there would have been 10 years later. And I think that one of the things that we have that feeds to your thoughts of pessimism, and I don't think it's generational, is this idea that we're not seeing the value or we're not able to adapt to get value. And if it feeds into the idea that some corporates, certainly not our corporate, I'd love to know that we've recouped um, lost profits from the COVID <laughs> Maybe we're doing something wrong, but well, it's because we're in a time-based billing model. So the unfortunate aspect for us is you can't go back and create more time once you've used it. Uh, damn. So the reality is, for some people, and you talked about the banks in particular, when they talk about the rise in interest rates, um, there was a time, and, and I'm told this reliably about my grandfather, where he lived off the interest from his bank accounts in his retirement. Right. So he could he earned a living wage, if you like, based on his savings. Mm. And to you and I, I think that's a foreign concept. Yeah, yeah. You got to invest it for anything like that to be possible, and that exposes you to so much risk. Yeah. So I, I think that the idea of being able to adapt to find value. Now, bearing in mind that I think we've got to acknowledge that you and I are both, and I use the word privilege. Um, mm for a reason neither of us is down to our last dollar and trying to find a way to stretch it to two certainly and there are people out there every day that we work with that are in that position mm. but there was a time where you could say you know what we'll, we'll forego this to have that instead you know we might do boiled potatoes instead of broccoli tonight and things like that really basic stuff when inflation hits energy prices when it hits fuel when it hits the the almost the utilities that we need to live, then it gets very, very hard for people to find a way to stretch a dollar. And I think that's probably something in 2023 that is a reality for a lot of people. I think, though, I'd like to think that we're cresting the wave. I don't think international conflict um, is ever going to stop. And I don't think it has stopped. We know about Ukraine at the moment because of the news cycle, but there are probably about 30 or 40 civil conflicts in the African continent that we're not aware of that are impacting on as many, if not more people as we mm. speak. Obviously, that don't involve two superpowers and a proxy war, and, and that's an issue. But the reality for all of us is, um, you know, this is not new. I want to ask when you did your travel in Europe, I won't speak about India. I want to do a separate pod on that because Perfect. it's fascinating. Talk to me a little bit about what you saw in Europe. You know, they, you know, essentially have a war at their doorstep. Was it noticeable? I found it really striking the um, amount of political imagery that we saw that was focused both on the uh, disruption in Iran based on like women's rights and, and resistance yeah. to that regime and uh, support of Ukraine. Um, so on civic buildings across Europe that we went to, you would often see a Ukrainian flag alongside the EU and the national flag. Um, and there were um, banners and posters in in three or four different countries that we went to that were all about support for Iran and the resistance there. But the, the, the Ukraine 
war and the conflict there seemed to be represented more by uh, symbols or tokens like flags or, or the occasional poster or whatnot. And I think I, I put that, that down to mostly the fact that it's been going on for over a year now. And when we were there, it had been going on for 10 months or whatever. I think there's clearly like a concerted political effort by Europeans to support Ukraine. Um, that's that's evident in the delivery of arms and that kind of thing. Whether it's sufficient or not is an entirely different question, but that seems to exist. And I think those decisions were made quite early on in the conflict, and it seems like they're broadly supported by the, the people and places that we went to. And it almost seems a little bit business as usual um, in some of these places. But in my mind, that's because they are currently and consistently taking action. Um, and so there's not like a need to agitate it's interesting. I, I'm always reminded of the difference between Australia and the rest of the world in that we are the world's largest island, right? And mm. we have the capacity, as much as we are multicultural, we certainly don't have the population mobility that Europe has. I think that with the disbursement of Ukrainian people throughout Europe for, you know, most of, you know, modern times um, and the threat that Russia's become to people or the perceived threat, I think mm. it is a perceived threat, there is no doubt uh, a mobilisation around that. I predict in 2023 that that conflict will end. Mm. I don't know how it will end um, and I don't believe it ends with the Ukraine looking the way it does now. Okay, yeah. Uh, because I think that there is only so much that can be done um, I think there is as much chance that it escalates as it ends. Mm. If it escalates, it will be places like Poland, mm. Lithuania, Latvia, Finland, etc., becoming involved, which is disastrous. Mm. Uh, the the two superpowers that I think should keep uh, mind their own business is America and China. <laughs> yeah because Russia's only hope of really dominating in the space is with Chinese aid or more Chinese aid. Mm -hmm. And we know that this is a, a beachhead for NATO. Although ironically, if it's a beachhead for NATO, they haven't done much to let the Ukrainian bring into NATO. Mm -hmm. I think that there will be continued tension in the Pacific in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to change unless there's a radical change in politics in China. But I also think unlike Russia, China is actually a, an economy built on customers. Right, yeah. And you, you can politic as much as you like. It was very hard to upset your customers. So I think they've got a, a more commercial sense. When it comes to things domestically, I think inflation will die down. Mm. I think I'm very comfortable with the the... The idea that we have our priorities in order. Mm. I believe we have a government at the moment that wants to move us to genuinely move us to reconciliation. And there are people that will criticise the way they do it. But ultimately, I think recognition for the history of Indigenous Australians is absolutely critical in the way we move forward. Mm. I suspect not this year, Matt, but I suspect in the next eight years, the discussion will happen about uh, Republic. Right, yeah. I think that will be successful. I think that we have a, a government in power at the moment that wants to do right by the underdog. Mm. And had this been midterm for our current government, I think they would have pulled more levers. The issue is for the government at the moment is they've inherited this issue. Yeah. They're navigating it 
better than their counterparts would have. Mm. And I think that that's why I think it'll crest the wave. And I'm not political in that regard. I'm not. I'm not picking sides. Uh, what I'm saying is, I have faith that we currently have a government, and it doesn't matter what you call them because they're they're centre left and centre right. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. We're all a bit left in Australia. We have universal health care. We have PBS. We have all these things that other countries think is thinks are socialism. <laughs> I think we have all the right stuff to crest the wave um it's not as bad as i've seen it's mm. better than most but there is a change fatigue you know and this is the yeah. logical piece there's a change fatigue for your generation and the generation coming up under you um but i still think we're in a place where hard work gets you an outcome Cool. I love that idea of change fatigue. I think I'm definitely feeling that myself where it feels like the, the narratives that we've been told growing up continue to be challenged and agitation is necessary and important. But sometimes I do wish we just knew the right answers, you know, and yeah. uh, that's easier said than done. And it's probably never a true, uh, a true reflection of reality. But uh, I definitely feel that. Yeah. The thing that I think is that I'm most optimistic about, and it's about to happen in the great state of New South Wales is I love the fact that we are mandated to vote in this country. Great, yeah. There are plenty of others that would say that's not the right system. I think it's fantastic. And we're about to go into a state government election. And for the first time in my life, Matt, have two people contesting that election that are intelligent, <laughs> that are committed that are politically engaged for what seems to be the right reasons right and they've been really decent and civilized with each other right that's a big deal and there's been very little by way of attack politics um oh. it's it's the way i believe it should work which is people saying he's a good guy and he's a good guy I want to keep doing the job and the other one saying i want his job because i think there is a different way to do a good yeah. job i think that one of the things that makes me really buoyant about this election is this and i know it's there but from the primary candidates i don't believe they're being driven by self-interest i believe they're being really driven by commitment to belief and yeah. they're for as much as we have stuff to worry about there are these great pockets that we can build on. So I, I, I know nothing more than you do. We're both just mm. travellers on a journey. But when you see and hear opportunity um, for civility and, and civic duty and a commitment to uh, the constituent, I sort of think you, you're finding a path that's quite nice. And again, for those that think I'm pro one side of politics or another, I probably would say to you what I am really interested in at the moment, I think is the most critical, if we want to be optimistic about the future, is people that we vote in that have our interests mm -hmm. at heart. Mm -hmm. That includes corporate Australia, Indigenous Australia, marginalised communities and the the, the broader uh, cis white het gender, you know, <laughs> males like Matt and I. I think if you've got people that are prepared to represent the broader interests of the community and make tough decisions from time to time, then things go okay. And I have to say for the first time in a long time, I think at a federal level, we do have that. And I think at a state level in where I live, regardless of who wins, we get that. And I Isn't think it's pretty powerful. 
Isn't that a fantastic spot to, to kind of wrap this conversation about 2023 up with? Because I would never have imagined that I would have agreed with you that my point of optimism in 2023 is that Australia feels like it's being governed reasonably well mm. at the moment. Um, two years ago, that would have seemed uh, baffling to me and, and something mm. I would never have come to as a point of optimism. But it feels like we have uh, leaders who are maybe in a position to try to work for us in an effective way. Um, and I think that's... Uh, going to hold us in the best stead that we can hope it to, despite all of the very uh, real challenges that I think we've talked about at some length today for this year. Um, I hope it's not been too pessimistic of a podcast for our listeners. I, um, I'm certainly uh, a, a bit more critical of these things, I think. But uh, I've loved your thoughts, Fred. A little bit of perspective, a little bit of the idea of information is always something that I um, that I'm try to be conscious of, given how constantly exposed to the world we are. We will have to see what, what 2023 looks like. Um, and fingers crossed we are in a position to navigate it maybe uh, better than I than I first uh, would have expected. Well, thanks very much for joining me and, and sharing those, those thoughts, Fred. Welcome back, Matt. I think um, I want to thank all the listeners, if I only knew, for their patience across the last couple of months. Matt did send me some information about how I could podcast for myself and in true intergenerational fashion i couldn't work out the technology so we're <laughs> coming back in fact we we uh we missed him greatly until next week when we give you more if i only knew thanks very much guys see ya thank you for listening this podcast is a better pod group production with special thanks to our researcher nicola binks executive producer matt blanche the providers of our theme song with credits that are in our bio and of course, you, the listener. It's important to remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Whilst there are therapeutic themes discussed, in no way is this podcast considered treatment. And in the event you're in a psychological emergency, please reach out in whatever way you can through triple zero or lifeline 13 11 14. It's important to remember that the discussion is for entertainment purposes and the opinions voiced by podcast hosts are theirs and theirs alone. Any reference to copyright or copywritten material is of course the copyright of the copyright owner and or relevant corporate entities. Thank you for listening to Bed Pod Group Productions and tune in to some of our other excellent pod productions on this network.